Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Produce North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Hello, everyone. This is Michael Hatton in Jerusalem, and welcome back to our Pardes podcast on the book of Samuel. Last time we considered the framing of the kingship issue. Shmuel became old, his sons appointed as judges, set themselves up in Be'er Sheva, but strayed from justice, subverted it, and took bribes. The elders approached Shmuel and they asked for a king, or perhaps they demanded a king, appoint over us a king to judge us, like all the peoples. Of course, this was just about a quote from the book of Deuteronomy, Devarim, chapter 17, where kingship is mentioned. And Shemuel was upset by the request, especially the fact that the people said, appoint for us a king to judge us. And when he takes the people's request to God, God responds in kind, they have not rejected you, Shemuel, but they have rejected me instead. However, hearken to their voice, but warn them first about the consequences. So last time we were considering some of the backdrop for our discussion, especially the section in Sefer Devarim, chapter 17. Remember, of course, that the book of Deuteronomy as a whole is about Moshe preparing the people of Israel to enter the land, which he will not enter. The final days of his life, the 40th year of the wandering, the people poised to enter the land, Moshe will encourage, and Moshe will admonish, and Moshe will inspire, and Moshe will warn, and this is part of that section. So many things in Sefer Devarim are a repetition of other mitzvot in the Torah, and some things are entirely new, such as Moshe's introduction of the provision of kingship obviously appropriate as the people are poised to enter the land. So the Torah says, as we discussed last time, when you say, I want a king over me, you shall have that king, but with three limitations, not too many horses, not too many wives, not too much gold and silver, and of course, one other provision, to write a copy of the Sefer Torah and to study it all the days of his life. And last time we considered is there in fact a Torahitic mitzvah to appoint a king? That was a disagreement among the early rabbis. Maimonides decided the halakha in favor of the view that argued that in fact a, it was a mitzvah, but it was a disagreement. And we can begin to appreciate why a disagreement exists because there, am, there is ambivalence surrounding this office called the king. In the Torah, the king is just one center of power, perhaps the most important, but there are others. There's the priesthood and the Levites who are centered at the temple. There is the judiciary, ultimately that will become the rabbinic Sanhedrin. And there is the office of the prophet, call that divine inspiration. And Sefer Devari mentions all of these as essential, so to speak, to a healthy, functioning people of Israel. And so clearly the vision is that they will balance each other insofar as their various powers and responsibilities are concerned. 
So when the people turn to Shemuel and say, give us a king to judge us, Shemuel sees something terribly frightening about that prospect, namely that ultimately the king will take on powers that do not belong to him. And that effectively is God's response. So before we go on to discover the warning of Mishpat HaMelech, the caution associated with the king, I want to point out one further fact. This point might only constitute food for thought, but later on will become critical. And that is, of course, the Torah mentioned in Sefer Devarim, three limits on the king's power. One pertained to horses, one pertained to wives, one pertained to gold and silver, with all of them ultimately being an attempt to create a monarchy that did not have absolute powers. But at the same time, those very three things point to the unique role that the king plays in ancient Israel or is expected to play. Horses, of course, are associated with an army with a military, with conducting warfare in ancient times. The fact that the Torah says the king shouldn't have too many horses also indicates to us that the main function of the king is to defend the realm. He will need horses. Don't have too many. The second thing that the Torah says, the king should not have too many wives. In the ancient world, a king made alliances with surrounding peoples and frequently those alliances were cemented by taking the daughters of other kings as his wives. The Torah says, great, but not too many. But what that indicates to us is the second role that is unique to the king is the forging of alliances with other peoples. The king may not have too much gold and silver, but he'll need some, that indicates the role of the king as responsible for regulating the economy, for taxation. That's what the king does. So even as the Torah spells out these three limits on the king's powers, it's actually indicating to us what is unique about the king's role. What does the king do for a living? The king defends the kingdom, the realm, i.e. the military. The king forges alliances with surrounding peoples, i.e. the wives. The king regulates the economy and collects taxes, i.e. the gold and the silver. And that's what the king does. And the priests and the Levites don't do that. They do something else. And the prophet doesn't do it either. And the judges don't do it. And effectively, we have in this little vignette in miniature, a concise description of what it is that the king is responsible for and how it differs from the other centers of power. So now we can appreciate, of course, based on this little sketch, that a king in ancient Israel was regarded as only part of a larger government. And again, I don't want us to think that the role of the king is hermetically different than the rules of the other centers of power because that kind of distinction is not as sharp in ancient Israel. A king could be inspired. A king could also perform religious functions. But the king did not have authority in the realm of the temple. And presumably, the priests and the Levites did not have authority over the armed forces. 
These were different rules. So as I said, Shemuel hears that the people want a king who will judge, and he understands that that potentially could lead to a situation where a king seizes absolute power. And when a king seizes absolute power, he is answerable to no one. And so the Torah says, no, the king is only part of a larger picture of government. And he is answerable to a higher power. Call that God. Let him write the Sefer Torah and study it all the days of his life and keep its mitzvot because he will be subject to that law like any other Israelite. At least that's the vision. So whether or not ultimately it is a mitzvah of the Torah to appoint a king or only a concession to the people's desires, in any case, the Torah says it must be a limited office. God says, they've rejected me, not you, Shemuel, because they are asking for kingship which will be unlimited in power. Indicate to them what is in store, and that is precisely what Shemuel now does with this particular protocol referred to in the text as Mishpat HaMelech, chapter 8 of Samuel 1, verse number 9, the law of the king. I'll just remind us, we've already had a law mentioned in Sefer Shemuel back in chapter 2, what was called Mishpat HaKohanim, the law of the priests, which basically meant that Chofni and Pinchas did as they pleased and abused their power. And Shmuel seems to be offering us a similar vision, potentially, for what might happen when kingship arises. This will be the law of the king that will rule over you. He will take your sons and he will make the charioteers and horsemen and they will run before his chariot. They will be his officers of the thousands and the fifties and they will plow his plowing and they will harvest his harvest and they will perform the things needed for his weapons and for his wars. He will take your daughters and he will make them perfumers and he will make them cooks and he will make them bakers and he'll take your fields and your vineyards and your olives and he will give those to his servants and he will take a tenth of your produce and he will take your servants and your maidservants and your fine young men and he will take your donkeys and he will take whatever he wants. And on that day, verse number 18, you will cry out from before your king, which you have appointed and asked for and chosen, and God will not answer you on that day. So Shmuel effectively spells out a series of powers that the king will have, which will allow him to lord it over the people of Israel and potentially abuse the powers that he has been given. Once again, there is a Talmudic discussion in the same place in Tractate Sanhedrin. What is spelled out here in Mishpat HaMelech, in the Law of the King, is this something that the king is actually able to do according to his mandate? Or is it simply a threat that Shemuel utters in order to discourage the people from pursuing this path? 
And once again, that's left unresolved. Some of the sages argue that in fact, what Shmuel describes here is not really what the king is permitted to do, but it's just a scare tactic, as it were, a threat, as it were, or perhaps a vision of what a king abusing his power might actually do, rather than his mandate. And the opposing view says, no, mishpat ha-melech means this is what the king can do. And I suspect that this disagreement about mishpat ha-melech is very much tied to the earlier disagreement as to whether having a king is a mitzvah or not. Clearly, if having a king is not a mitzvah, then we could understand that mishpat ha-melech would be something that would inspire fear in the people of Israel and therefore be used, as it were, as a vehicle for dissuading them from going down this road. But they will not be dissuaded. Even as Shemuel pronounces Mishpat HaMelech, the people state their demand again, and they said no in verse number 19. Rather, a king will be over us. And we as well will be like all the other nations. And our king will judge us. And he will go up before us. And he will fight our wars. Shmuel once again relays the words of the people to God. And God says, verse number 22, Listen to their voice. Appoint over them a king. And Shmuel tells the people of Israel, each one go back to your own town in your own village and the king will be appointed over you in due time. So when the people repeat their request this time, the tone actually changes. Earlier they had said in verse number five, Sima lanu melech, appoint over us a king to judge us like all the nations. And now they say, verse 20, We will also be like all the other nations. And of course, once again, there are two ways to interpret this. We will be like all the other nations in this form of government. And in the ancient world, certainly in the ancient Near East, this was the predominant model, the model of monarchy. That's the generous reading. And the more ominous reading, we will be like all the other nations and not unique as the people of Israel. We want a king that will not be, as it were, a king of Israel, but a king like all the other nations have a king. And our destiny is to be like all the other nations, not to have our unique mission as the people of Israel. That's the more ominous reading of this demand by the people. And as it were, this will not play itself out until much time has elapsed and we'll have to actually follow the course of the story to determine how it works out. And sometimes, in fact, it will work out that the king will inspire and guide and provide an example to his people to be, as it were, the people of Israel, and often it will be otherwise. But that, as it were, is the ambivalence that is playing itself out in our chapter, in the Torah itself, in the rabbinic discussion, and we can immediately appreciate why there should be ambivalence. Because in kingship is tremendous potential. A king can do things that are monumental that a judge can never do. A king can unite the people. 
and a king can defend the kingdom. And a king can set policy that will change the course of Jewish history. And that's tremendous. But a king that abuses his power can also become corrupt. And when that happens, of course, all bets are off. Because if we thought that a bad judge was bad news, Shmuel is indicating a bad king is many orders of magnitude worse in terms of the damage that a king can do. Obviously, the lesson here is the greater the potential, the greater the destructive power potentially that could be unleashed, but also the greater the possibilities for something wonderful and constructive and monumental in the world. And so kingship is introduced in this chapter. The people are looking for something with greater power than a judge. So the end of the chapter, Shmuel and God relent. The king will be appointed. The people will have their wish. It's not yet clear how that will play itself out. That will, of course, be the subject of our next chapter, chapter 9, which will be our official introduction to Shaul HaMelech Saul, the first king of Israel. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Pardes North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.